Hi, I'm Adam. And I'm Nitsan. And this is Stories from the Eastern West, a show telling you little-known stories that changed our world. Today's show starts with an unlikely meeting in Paris. It left a former concentration camp prisoner wondering what goes through a mind taken over by Nazi ideology. Her fantasy later became the basis of one of the most thrilling Holocaust movies in cinema history. Coming up on Stories from the Eastern West. Zlín, Praha, Varsava, Madrid, London, Paris, New York, Casablanca. Where you see a kind of totality of the human presence. Absolutely, absolutely. That is exactly Stories from the Eastern West. It's the late 1950s. Thirteen years have passed since the end of the Second World War. Several Nazi war criminals have been put on trial, evoking a lot of emotion and public attention. More are yet to come. One of the many people following them is Zofia Posmisch, a former Auschwitz-Birkenau prisoner and a reporter for Polish radio. I followed very carefully the trials against camp supervisors that took place in Poland and abroad, not just the ones that concern Auschwitz. Though I did look out for the ones I might know. I saw some of them in the reports. I read that people I knew from Auschwitz became witnesses. I thought I might see my unit's overseer. It crossed my mind many times that she might ask me to become her defense witness. After a new plane route is established between Warsaw and Paris, Zofia Posmisch takes the inaugural flight to the French capital to make a radio piece about it. Upon arrival, she is only a few hours before the return flight. She decides to take a bus from Orly Airport to Place de la Concorde in the heart of the city. I took the bus to Place de la Concorde. It was full of tourists. There was singing, shouting, and joking everywhere. And much of it was in German. Suddenly, someone yelled behind me. I froze completely. It was the voice of my overseer. I thought to myself, well, of course, I didn't see her at any trial. All this time she's been living a peaceful life in Paris. And I started thinking, my God, what am I supposed to do? My first idea was to say, or maybe I should tell the police that she's an ex-SS member. That's when I heard someone calling Erika a second time. I decided to turn around. It wasn't her, of course. She was much younger and didn't look like her. But that thought, what would I have done if it was her? It just wouldn't leave me alone. Zofia Posmish returned home to Warsaw that evening, very troubled. She told her husband what had happened. He thought about it for a moment and said, you know what, you should write about it. So she did. 
she wrote a radio play called The Passenger from Cabin Number 45. It takes place on a ship traveling from Europe to Latin America. Liza and Walter, a German couple, are enjoying their time sunbathing and joking. Suddenly, Lisa notices a woman whose presence startles her. This mysterious woman wearing sunglasses and long sleeves in summer resembles the prisoner from Auschwitz where Lisa was a supervisor. Overwhelmed by memories and emotions, she becomes obsessed with discovering the passenger's true identity and starts revealing to her husband the circumstances in which she might have met her. Seeing how appalled her story makes him, she quickly censors herself, explaining that she was only performing her duties as a good German, and that, truth be told, the woman owes her life to her. In a moment of solidarity, her husband tries to calm her down by saying that the times when SS members were hunted down are long gone. But Liza can't stop thinking that the woman might finally approach her and publicly reveal her identity by saying, I wanted to give her a voice. I wanted her to talk. Posmish often wondered how her supervisor would have defended herself had she been prosecuted. Her radio play captured all their fraught imagined conversations. Up until this point, both fiction and non-fiction literature about Nazi German concentration camps had been dominated by martyrological narratives describing the atrocities as seen by the prisoners. I wrote the radio play thinking that it couldn't be aired. Because I had used this different perspective, the point of view of an SS member, not a prisoner. But this was the time of the thaw. The thaw was a period in the late 1950s when the strict censorship that had appeared after the communists came to power in Poland actually started to loosen up. It began with Stalin's death in 1953, after which artists in the Soviet Union were given relative freedom. Due to its political dependence on the Soviet Union, this change soon influenced Poland. It was in this new reality that the passenger from cabin number 45 was not only aired, but very well received. Shortly after its premiere, Posmish met film director Andrzej Munk on a bus. I've been wanting to contact you. I would like to make a film out of it, he said. He decided to adapt uh, Zofia Posmysz's uh, Passenger. Uh, he was one of the most important Polish directors of the time and uh, definitely the one who felt uh, well equipped or equipped well enough to tackle the most difficult subject of 20th century, which was the Holocaust. And uh, a subject that was present in Polish cinema, of course, but still it was a subject that was 
treated as uh, highly difficult, uh, thorny, and uh, difficult even to depict. This is Michał Oleszczyk, a film historian and critic from the University of Warsaw. Polish film school in general, as a movement, was uh, a group of filmmakers who decided to tackle the subject of Second World War in Polish cinema after 1956. Meaning during the thaw. To understand what was Polish film school itself, you need to remember that Polish film school was created by people, by filmmakers who had very much in mind and they had very much in memory the very strict period of Stalinist terror, of Second World War and of strict political censorship which really dominated the scene in the late 1940s and early 1950s. So these people, they started to talk about the war to, talk, uh, to tackle the experience of war, which was extremely fresh. It was really, you know, 10 years since this uh, terrible, terrible shattering experience happened. They started to talk about the war in a more open, in a more honest, and in more politically unorthodox way. And these are films like Andrzej Wajda's Canal, Ashes and Diamonds, also by Andrzej Wajda, and also, crucially, films by Andrzej Monk, like Eroica, which presented Second World War in this sort of comical light, which was almost shocking at the time, and Bad Luck, which tackled the theme of political conformism in Poland at that time. And uh, after those two, Monk prepares The Passenger. Posmish's The Passenger from Cabin Number 45, with its unexpected perspective from the other side, fitted Monk's unorthodox approach to filmmaking. While he kept this perspective as well as the character of the psychological relationships of the protagonists, Munch altered parts to become more cinematic. He replaced Liza's monologues with a series of flashbacks, showing the turbulence of memory and Liza's moral sidestepping when confronted with the possibility of meeting former prisoner Marta. The first flashback appears the very moment Liza notices this passenger resembling Marta. It's a short and dynamic montage of brutal scenes that are at the core of Holocaust imagery. Naked prisoners running between perfectly ordered rows of soldiers, carts of bodies being pushed, a number being tattooed on a hand. Very rapid and basically almost like a sensory assault um, isn't a narrative at all. It's just a, a slap in the face. It's simply a sudden eruption of pure violence and humiliation. And in an essence, this is exactly what the camps were, pure humiliation and death. The second retrospective is a story Liza tells her husband. She portrays herself as a strict but fair guard to whom Marta owes her life. Z nowego transportu miałam sobie wybrać pomocnicę. W moim komandzie praca była lżejsza niż gdzie indziej, a więźniarki traktowane po ludzku. In order to live, in order to continue she needs to believe in a version in which she was not a villain. She doesn't have enough self-knowledge and enough courage to face the fact that she was a villain. So she needs to construct a narrative that saves at least part of her humanity. Back on the ship, Lisa is still observing the other passenger, trying to figure out if she really is Marta. The voiceover says, her tension rises and more authentic memories of the past keep coming to the surface. That's when the third and most elaborate flashback starts. The third version, the third flashback, strips Lisa a little bit of her self-delusion because it's the version that she tells to herself 
as the voiceover says, which doesn't mean that it's not self-censored because we keep lying to ourselves. So the, the, the first flashback is basically the version that Lisa wants to believe in her heart. What would be the version that she would present in a court of law uh, in Nuremberg, for example, we don't know. What would be the version that the witnesses that were there and survive would say, we don't know. This last memory undermines everything she's told her husband up until this point and reveals the complexity of her relationship with Marta. There's no trace of care towards the prisoner. The pity she claimed to have earlier is replaced by fascination, jealousy, and most of all, a desire to dominate Marta. The psychological duel between Lisa and Marta, between the German overseer and the Polish prisoner, uh, this is the heart of the movie and uh, the control, the mind game of taking control of another life. Still, this relationship between Marta and Lisa is intimate on some levels. The, the looks that they exchange are looks of deep, inquisitive knowledge about the other person. Marta tries to x-ray Lisa, Lisa tries to see through Marta, and it's really a duel of two very strong-willed women, of which I think Marta is the one with deeper moral uh, insight, because of course Lisa is part of, a, of an ideological machine. Marta is a free woman. That's the great paradox of the story, that Marta is imprisoned, but she's free. Lisa is supposedly free, but she's really imprisoned by the ideology. The psychological duel between the two women is intellectual, discreet, and almost silent, just like how the film depicts the concentration camp in its flashbacks. Andrzej Munch was a very paradoxical filmmaker. I don't think that he would go for the most obvious solutions, which is why I think he chose this minimal micro approach. I don't think he was interested in uh, staging big obvious scenes. If you compare The Passenger, for example, with Schindler's List, you see immediately that these films were made by such different directors. Spielberg is uh, he's a sh showman. He likes big emotional scenes. He likes big scale. And his Holocaust film is also a big production, right? It's a three-hour movie filled with huge, amazingly realized scenes, but he's a showman. Munch is not a showman. Munch is an intellectual who wants you to experience the horrific nature of the Holocaust by experiencing only its, its paraphernalia, the, the margins. He draws only the margins and the center you need to draw for yourself. And in this, I think he really is deeply modernist, because I think it's a deeply modernist strategy. Monk's cinematographer, Krzysztof Wieniewicz, said in an interview, We treated this nightmarish scenery as distant backdrop, in a discreet and blurred way. Oleszczyk recalls a scene where a Nazi prepares a can of Cyclone B, a lethally poisonous gas that is going to be used in the gas chambers, while the background is covered in smoke coming from the crematorium's chimney. And in, in a supreme monk touch, we see that he uh, loses some of the crystals, that the crystals uh, scatter on the roof, and, and he, he arduously, sort of painstakingly, uh, sweeps them and uh, pours them into the chute. 
and of course we know that just one meter below people are dying and suffocating to death. So it's a shocking scene because of what Monk is not showing. Uh, he's not showing the people dying in the chamber. He's showing someone who is actually killing them. But by performing such a mundane task, just by bringing the can onto the roof and and sprinkling those crystals down the chute. So I think that in this you can see Monk the documentarian because he was so attuned to reality, to physical reality, to the absurdities, to the to small details. For example, when the suitcases are open and emptied by the prisoners themselves in order, you know, to plunder whatever gold or whatever valuables may be there in the suitcases of, of, of the inmates, we see suddenly in the corner of the frame, we see that there is a menorah in one of the suitcases. So uh, we see this Jewish um, item, Jewish symbol, but Munk doesn't cut to a close-up of the menorah. He keeps it at the edge of the frame. So we see the menorah and we see that it's a part of a larger suffering, but it's not like he pushes the menorah to our face to say, oh, look, there it is. No, we need to be very careful viewers when we are watching this film. And if you think about the truly great Holocaust films like Shoah, for example, by Claude Lanzmann, they always have an element of omission that you don't show something. In the whole nine hours of Shoah, there is not a single piece of the archival footage of uh, Auschwitz in black and white. And uh, I think this is the strategy, you know, of approaching the horror with awe and respect and not as something that you as an artist are so powerful that you could depict in its entirety. In in Spielberg's approach, and he was criticized from there for that, there's this illusion of totality, that yes, I will show you the whole of the nightmare. But in, in Munch and Lanzmann, there is this humility towards the subject. I will only show you those micro fragments. The rest of the horror you need to discover in yourself. And I think that it works brilliantly in Passenger. Before becoming a feature filmmaker, Angeline Munch was a documentarian. It's unsurprising that he filmed on true-to-life locations. For example, the contemporary scenes taking place on the ship were filmed on the MS Batore, a Polish transatlantic liner. It's actually a le legendary ship because for many people Batory, the, the word meant freedom because it, it was the gateway to the United States or to the West more generally. Surprisingly, the shooting didn't go well mostly because of the heavy rocking of the ship that the director hadn't anticipated and influenced the camera work. Generally, he wasn't happy with the quality of the footage that belonged to the modern part of the story. He then filmed the flashbacks in the Auschwitz concentration camp, which had been turned into a museum after the war. The material evolved on set and turned out much longer than expected. Monk was very satisfied with the effect, but he felt the two parts were incompatible. He decided that the scenes on the ship should be rewritten and entirely reshot in a studio. But he never got to see this plan through. My understanding is that he was on his way to Łódź to continue working on the set designs for the studio part of the passenger. He crashed his uh, Fiat on the 20th of September of 1961, and uh, that was it. He, he died tragically. Monk left behind the film reels with more questions than answers. Nobody knew what his exact plans for rewriting and finishing the film had been. Some thought the material should just be left in an archive, while others thought it should be released 
even with the material that Munk was unhappy with. While others believed a new director should try to remake the film, his co-workers from the film searched for a solution for two years. Of course, they asked me to write something that would tie together what hadn't been filmed with the material from Auschwitz. But I said, you have the original script, you should follow it. I don't feel I can do it. Finally, the film crew decided that they would not cover up the incompleteness, but actually incorporate it into the film. The material filmed on the ship was used in the form of still frames with a voiceover commentary explaining the circumstances in which the film was finished. It transformed it into a hybrid film essay made of still and moving pictures. There's this eerie quality of those still images. It's almost like it's frozen, like the reality is frozen and the past is alive. We are watching something that... It's almost like a fossil. It's like something, you know, excavated from the archive, something that that wasn't finished, that was put together. It's almost like, you know, watching in a museum, something that was reconstructed, and you can imagine the full form of it. Uh, you will never see it. We will never see Passenger S um, imagined by Andrzej Monk. Uh, and yet what was made retains power. Many commentators said the same thing, that uh, the very incompleteness of Passenger is something that elevates it to a new level of greatness. And these are extremely cruel words, of course, in terms of dealing with a personal death of Andrzej Munk. But, uh, but, but, but on the other hand, it's undeniable that the film draws its strength from that, because it approaches a subject that famously cannot be fully depicted. And here is this film which, by the very fact of its incompleteness and tragic history, partakes in something that will forever be incomplete, which is the memory and understanding of, of the Holocaust. This episode of Stories from the East and West was written and produced by Monika Proba for CulturePL, the flagship brand of the Adam Mickiewicz Institute. It was hosted by Nitzan Reisner and me, Adam Żuławski. It was edited by Wojciech Oleksiak and Adam. Wojciech also did the music and sound design. A huge thank you to both Zofia Posmisch and Michał Oleszczyk for talking to us. For more interesting links about The Passenger, be sure to check the show notes in your podcast app or on our website, sftew.com. Make sure to subscribe or check our feed next month. We'll be bringing you a love letter, a very peculiar love letter at that, to a tiny country and a defining moment in its history. See you then. Bye.